You got to feel it uh, when it's a, a vocal song that has banjo accompaniment. Because a banjo can really mess everything up. You can have the whole world mad at you if you've got a good band doing a bluegrass song and you, you play every note you know as loud as you can on the whole song. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Keith Billick here with the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I hope you're all doing great out there. And for those of you here in the States, I, uh, I, I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving weekend and I hope your football team scored more points than the other football team. And of course, if you are listening to this show right as it comes out on Monday, we are celebrating the most American holiday of them all, which is Cyber Monday. And folks, I'm here to save you a whole bunch of time by giving you some key advice here. You know what everybody on your holiday list would absolutely love? An official world-famous Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast t-shirt and or stickers. Those are available at banjopodcast.com. They come in a variety of sizes and colors, so they are good for everyone on your list. Get some for the whole family. They uh, make good stocking stuffers. So don't, don't be one of those people caught in the stampede uh, at Walmart or whatever was going to happen. You just go to banjopodcast.com, bypass all of that, and give your family and friends what they really want. And as an added bonus, you will also be supporting your favorite banjo podcast and help keeping this show running and keeping these banjo player interviews coming into your ear holes on a regular basis. If you are looking to help out the podcast, an even better way is to head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and become an official supporter. And today we need to thank this episode's Patreon supporter of the show, and it is a Hall of Honor patron. That's Jason Kopeck. Jason signed up for the Hall of Honor level, which is the highest civilian honor a listener can earn. And as one of his rewards, he got a free official podcast t-shirt. So there's all sorts of bonuses involved in that. So head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast, check it out for yourself. And thank you so much once again to Jason Kopeck, today's supporter of the show. I also love getting emails from you listeners with any thoughts, comments, suggestions, questions, any of that stuff. Hit me up at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. I do try to personally respond to all of those. You know, sometimes I'm quicker than others, but uh, yeah, shoot me a line. Pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. featured guest is Joe Mullins. He has been one of the top traditional style bluegrass banjo players on the scene for decades now and has really been part of the bluegrass community literally since he was born. He's the son of Paul Moon Mullins, who was a well-known broadcaster and professional fiddler. So Joe has really carried that tradition through several 
great bands, including the supergroup Longview, and now plays with Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers, who earned an award as the 2019 IBMA's Entertainers of the Year. So they are still performing at a top-notch professional level. Joe is as knowledgeable about traditional bluegrass as someone can possibly get and is the perfect person to offer some nuggets of wisdom about the value of that traditional music and how to approach that playing style. I will note that this is the first interview that I'll be releasing from my time at IBMA, so you will hear quite a bit of Exhibit Hall trade show ambiance in the background. But even though the acoustics were not perfect, I did not want to miss an opportunity to sit down with such a great bluegrass banjo player such as this. So give a warm Picky Fingers podcast welcome to Joe Mullins. I'm Joe Mullins from southwestern Ohio. Grew up around Middletown, Ohio. Landed there because my dad was a broadcaster and a fiddle player. And tonight, as we're interviewing with Keith, my dad will be a new inductee for the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. Yeah. 2022, a big year. Peter Rowan and Norman Blake and my dad, the late Paul Moon Mullins. Yeah, congrats so much. I was definitely planning to bring that up, but let's just lead off with it. Yeah, congrats to you and your family. That's great. Well, very grateful. So I've, I have been uh, in bluegrass from, the, from my toes up since day one. Uh, Dad was, at the time I was born, he was a hot item on the radio, promoting bluegrass and traditional country entertainment and a full-service commercial radio station. Boy, I guarantee you that's ready to play that day, wasn't it? Man, that's, uh, that's Ralph and Carter, the Stanley Brothers. And all the Clinch Mountain boys. The uh, mandolin player was playing on top of the beat as well as the bass player. And uh, they didn't, uh, they pushed and shoved, but they didn't speed, did they? That's what a Carter Stanley's old song's entitled. Uh, Darling, somehow you're still on my mind. Well, it's 24 and a half. And did that for uh, most of a lifetime. Simultaneously, he was an in-demand fiddle player. Uh, when I was born in the mid-60s, he's working recording sessions uh, in Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio, and and uh, playing on and off with a lot of good bands. Back then, he worked a whole lot with Charlie Moore and Bill Napier and with Earl Taylor and Jim McCall. Some of that industrial strength bluegrass that yeah. we have uh, been documenting and talking about the last few years. But I was born in the middle of bluegrass history. Uh, Dad working shows, promoting concerts with all of the banjo heroes that I grew up wanting to be around. Yeah. He, as a fiddle player, he'd worked with the Stanley Brothers for a little while, so saw Ralph Stanley from the time I can remember. Uh, Dad was great friends with uh, Reno and Smiley, so I got acquainted with Don after I started playing as a teenager uh, before uh, he passed away, way too young in life. And J.D. Crow and Sonny Osborne were close family friends. Mm -hmm. I had access to them guys. and So when I got interested in banjo, grew up, Dad was a fiddler, and yeah. I learned rhythm guitar. I was a decent rhythm guitar player by the yeah. time I was 12 or 13. Yeah. Dad had bought a banjo off of some guy in the neighborhood needing a little money, and it was a... Uh, early 70s RB250, okay, and it was under a bed at the house. Dad could play a little bit, uh, but I'd seen seen it done and seen it done right. And right. Uh, I got the banjo out at about age 13, started fooling with it. It came pretty naturally. Dad gave me specific instructions. He said, follow a Scruggs style to learn, yeah. uh, learn to play a forward role, play with that approach, and uh, it'll serve you well. So I dug in and lived with the thing in my hands for 
the next three or four years. Before that banjo appeared at your house, was there something about the banjo that drew you to that instrument specifically, or was it more just a thing of opportunity where you had this instrument available and ended up taking to it? Liked everything bluegrass. Man, yeah. I mean, her dad on radio, I had a decent guitar. I had a good D18 by the time I was eight or nine years old. Wow. And had a record player and a stack of 45s and LPs yeah. in my bedroom of all the classic bluegrass. And just, that was my world. Yeah. And uh, banjo, I hadn't thought about it. I didn't say one day, I think I'll be a banjo player. Dad also could play mandolin a little bit. Had recorded mm -hmm. some mandolin uh, of his own. And uh, I could chop a mandolin and play a few tunes so as i was a kid growing up okay here's a banjo let me try that and it came so naturally and wow. it, and i was just drawn to it like a magnet when i figured out uh that you know you could just when i figured out that, the, that that you can make music just playing thumb index middle right um yeah. and and then figuring out how to make it sound the way uh, your heroes made it sound well, speaking of your heroes, and it sounds like you were exposed to as much bluegrass as probably any youngster could have been, who who were your specific heroes that you really gravitated toward as being your favorite players to listen to? When I started fooling with the banjo in earnest in the 1970s, mm -hmm. Osborne Brothers were still kings of bluegrass, and yeah. I saw them a lot. Yeah. And J.D. Crow, you know, just a couple of years after 0044 is when I started fooling with a banjo. Yeah. Dad and Crow were great friends. Dad promoted a lot of New South concerts in Ohio. So I saw J.D. a lot, hmm. knew him on a first-name basis, and was just infatuated with uh, with what Crow was doing on all those albums for Rounder Records in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, so the Osborne Brothers and J.D. Crow, huge influence. But Dad's instructions were pay attention to Scruggs first because that's what they did. Yeah. And he knew that, and they knew that. Uh -huh. And every time I got around those guys, they were playing a break off of a flattened Scruggs tune. Uh -huh. You know? And so I'm old enough that it was before CDs, before cassettes were a popular item, and they were murder to learn from anyway. Uh, but I had all the original LPs, even had a stack of 78 RPMs that Dad had had since he was uh, a kid in the 50s. And uh, so I, I spent a lot of time learning flattened Scruggs music, learning Perfect timing, three-chord bluegrass. Oh, man, yeah, I really want to dig in more of that. I, I imagine that that's the advice that you would maybe give to someone learning today is to do a similar deep dive into where all of those players got their information from. Learn from whence it came. Yeah. There was not bluegrass banjo until Scruggs stepped on the Opry stage of Monroe, and that was the shot heard around the world. Mm -hmm. Right there. Yeah. And uh, flat and Monroe... We're writing three-chord songs, and here comes Earl Eugene Scruggs from Flint Hill, North Carolina, right. to the Ryman Auditorium, and that's what started the whole thing. Yeah. And so you go back to that. Even now, even now, a friend will send me a, a YouTube link to something off of one of the Flatten Scruggs TV shows of Paul Warren and Earl Scruggs. Right. And uh, the technique, the ease of operation, the touch Scruggs had, it's still never been equal. I would love to hear you talk about all those things that you just mentioned. You mentioned the, the tone touch technique of, of Scruggs. A minute ago, you mentioned the, the drive and the timing of the early bluegrass. Yep. I would love to hear you talk about how you go about achieving that in your own playing, or how would you describe how that drive and the, and the timing works in bluegrass? For me, I knew the songs. Mm -hmm. I, I had just grown up in a family 
saturated with presenting bluegrass music mm-hmm. on radio and my dad on stage. And uh, if you know where you're going, you got a chance of getting there, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, so having that early instruction from my dad and, and, and several of his uh, contemporaries to say, man, stick with learning the basics, like, you know, from, from the, the, the Scruggs stuff. Yeah. And of course, also, I was always infatuated with the Stanley Brothers because of the vocal work. Ralph's timing was so good on the 1950s Mercury recordings of the Stanley Brothers. Ralph's timing was good all along, mm-hmm. uh, but he was challenging himself with the songs his brother was writing and with the band, uh, with the Clinch Mountain Boys bands in the mid-50s, like no other time. And yeah. uh, there was some great banjo in there. And uh, I say, Don Reno and Red Smiley were, were family friends of my dad. You know, I hadn't seen them a lot when I was a, a little guy. You know, they were at the house a time or two. But I'd been playing a couple of years, and I get to see Don Reno playing live when I'm about 15. And I've been wow. a couple, couple of years living yeah. living with the Scruggs catalog. Uh-huh. And I see Reno, you know. I see him playing rock and roll. <laughs> uh-huh. He played rock and roll. Right. Um, with his thumb. Uh-huh. And I'm like, my God, you can't do that. And... Uh, <laughs> It has a whole new world. Uh-huh. I was so infatuated with the Scruggs role that, that uh, the uniqueness of what Reno was doing, I wound up, after I was, had the blessing of being in a pretty good band by the time I was 18 mm-hmm. and helped that band grow for the next decade, I wound up with trying to think with the timing and the touch of Scruggs. Uh, but to find my own path, I drew from those other influences, Reno and Stanley and Sonny Osborne. And once I started playing professionally at age 18 or so, got to see the Osborne brothers a lot. Uh, they started their career in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, they first sang on the same radio station that my dad worked at a few years later when yeah. I was growing up. A lot of shared so, history there. A lot yeah. of shared history. Yeah. And so I got to see the Osborne brothers and had access to Sonny Osborne anytime I needed it, Sonny and J.D. Crow. Do you remember anything specific that they might have uh, taught you that you still carry with you as, a, as a, an important lesson? Oh, yeah. A real simple thing that Saul Crow do. And he said, I do it that way every time. If you're uh, playing a plain old G position song. That's a standard Scruggs ending that everybody's used. But you don't... Or play an end-of-the-line leg. I'm noting that first string yeah. at the fifth fret right. and doing a pinch every time instead of an open fifth string. Actually, an open fifth string. And I've got something funky with my nut or my bridge. My fifth string isn't sounding the way I want it to right now. But, crow. Every time that I'm going to play what could be an open fifth string, yeah. I'm going to pinch. I'm going to grab it right there, first and fifth. It's just an extra layer of punch that we all know Crow had. Yeah. And uh, that was a very simple thing. I'm sitting around learning how to play some of his breaks and some of the classic Scruggs breaks, and he, he showed me that. It's something very, very simple, but it means a ton when you're 14 or 15 and J.D. Crow says, do it this way. Right. And... Yeah, I mean, as we know, a lot of those, those, those small details gives you that extra, you know, you can get maybe 90% of the way there yeah. just yeah. with the basics, but those details is where those last 10% yeah. 
are it is in. it is it's it's a separator and I, you know dad had told me when i was 12 or 13 when i really started playing forward roll don't yeah don't 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 play with a backward roll you'll get lost play with the forward <laughs> so i was scared to death of a backward roll and i'm i'm maybe 21 or two and right. i could play pretty good by then but i was still a lot lacking and uh, we're doing a show with the Osborne brothers i think i'm i'm backstage and you know Flat and Scruggs recorded the old Salty Dog Blues from Mercury mm -hmm. Records in about 49 or 50. Yeah. And wound up opening a million shells with it from late 50s up through their TV days and so on and so forth. Scruggs played the thing 80 different ways in all those years. And I yeah. was a fiend for finding live recordings of Scruggs on radio or on stage. But never forget the Osborne brothers came to Nashville by a deck of records in the Grand Ole Opry in 1964. And they did the Salty Dog Blues a lot as well. They mm. recorded it on their famous Voices in Bluegrass album. But I'm backstage somewhere, and I play, I'm warming up, and I'm playing the Salty Dog Blues. Sonny yeah. says, you're not playing the part right up the neck. And it starts with a backward roll. I was scared yeah. to death to play a backward roll, you know. Right. Pretty simple. Yeah, that first part, though. That yeah. first part, I was playing it. I can't remember how now. I was faking it. Yeah. So many of us will fake it. And I still fake a lot of things as I've gotten older. <laughs> but you ask about little things I was blessed to learn from our banjo heroes. So simple. Yeah. It's backward roll all the way. And so, once you hear it the right way, you can't go, yes. you can't unhear it, which yeah. is kind of funny that you didn't right. realize that in the first place. Yeah. Even in the, the years before Sonny passed, he would talk about. Now, once you can find out how to incorporate the backward roll, it changes your play. It does. I. Uh, and you didn't get lost like you were scared or no. uh, like you're worried about? Even little things where you reverse the roll subtly, mm -hmm. those started coming to me in my early to mid-20s to where I could hear the difference in Scruggs and Crow and Osborne. Yeah. Uh, uh, how would you describe those? I would love to hear about the differences that you're hearing between those there guys. There was a little thing. I, I'm going to put a capo on because yeah, sure. I think that fifth string sounding gross. But I'm going to put a capo on because the um, Flat and Scruggs did classic old uh, number entitled No Mother or Dad. Sure. Yeah. And uh, they did No Mother or Dad. And I was really walking the floor with a banjo in about 78. The Osborne Brothers did an album called Bluegrass Collection. And they covered a ton of their favorites of Flatten Scruggs and Monroe. Is that the one with Mac Wiseman? Nope. No, this is a couple years before that. Okay. Um, it was Bobby and Sonny, Twin Fiddles on the whole album by Kenny Baker and Blaine Sprouse, and uh, an A-team of rhythm players. And Bobby and Sonny's old friend, Benny Birchfield, who'd been in their trio in the early 60s, came back to cut this album with them because it was classic bluegrass. Okay. And they did uh, a ton of Flatten Scruggs and Monroe and a few Stanley covers. And a couple of their early songs they redid, like uh, Sweethearts Again and This Heart of Mine Can Never Say Goodbye. Yeah. Pain of My Heart, which Bobby had written as a teenager, and then Flatten Scruggs cut it. I don't think I knew that. And Bobby wrote Pain in My Heart and cut it with the Lonesome Pine Fiddlers on wow. some off-brand record label. Incredible. Flat heard it on the radio. The rest is his. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. But anyway... They did No Mother or Dad on that bluegrass collection. Uh -huh. And it jumped out at me um, that there, when you go to the four and back, there's a reverse in that roll right there. Very subtle. 
That's one of the first places I picked it up, and I learned it again because Scruggs did it in Petticoat Junction, a few things. Real okay. simple stuff we're talking about here. But if you're a, a, a digging in deep bluegrass player, of course. little things that, that, you know, I had aha moments along the way as yeah. I was learning. Right there. right there, yeah. I wasn't doing it that way until <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, a light bulb comes. Right. It makes all the difference in the world. It changes it from, right. it makes it something much more uh, intimate and purposeful. Right. Sonny did something like that. But I said Petticoat Junction. I, I also took note of what... I had a bunch of live cuts of Flat and Scruggs doing Petticoat Junction, 60s shows, hmm. uh, when they were, you know, just kings, just filling up arenas everywhere. Yeah. Put it in B-flat, because J.D. Crow told me one time, they all sound good in B-flat. <laughs> so. Might have a point there. <laughs> yeah, I think that he hearing, hearing those rolls turn back around yep. that's what it gives it that cool syncopation yep. which is what catches your ear yeah, yeah. So, it's got to like be that. like that you just mentioned you've had a lot of aha moments as you've as you've learned can you think of any others i love hearing about how you were, were finding out about these things and first time i was at bean blossom indiana i was 16 fall of 82. Mm -hmm. And I say that's where my professional career began. My, oh, wow. dad, my dad and Monroe were great friends. Dad had worked for Bill as one of the MCs at the Bean Blossom Festivals from day one. That's one of, one of his Hall of Fame qualifications. He was the first, the first MCs for Bean Blossom okay. and also for Ralph Stanley's McClure Virginia Festival because they needed him to, to promote both on radio in yeah. Ohio. He created one of the biggest bluegrass markets in the eastern U.S. on radio. And so Monroe and Stanley, they were great friends. They wanted my dad promoting their, their shows when of course. the Bluegrass Festivals were first starting. But my first trip to Bean Blossom, I'm a 16-year-old high school senior in the fall of 82, 40 years ago at, at the fall show in Bean Blossom. And Dad had booked Bill to come and MC uh, Saturday and Sunday, and he put us on the poster. I've got one of the classic Monroe office posters, Larry Sparks, Jim and Jesse, Bill Monroe, James Monroe and the Midnight Ramblers, Paul Mullins and Joe. I've made it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, That's incredible. Dad and I That's went great. out twice, I think, did a 30-minute set. Just, just, just as, fiddle and banjo? Just as a duo. Oh, wow. Fiddle banjo. Dad could play guitar, and i play banjo. We'd sing okay. some duets. We'd switch off and play just fiddle banjo stuff. But... Uh, that's one of the first times I got to see Kenny Ingram play. See that angel puffin', boy, she's making time. Had all train his word how to rail, rail, rail. Hidden for the mountain that she got to climb. Bring in that Georgia It was Curly Seckler in the Nashville grass. Curly Seckler in the Nashville grass? Yes, Flat had passed away in the late 70s. Okay. And Curly Seckler, 
had uh, employed uh, a fellow named Willis Spears that was a great flat imitator, mm-hmm. and he had employed Johnny Warren, Paul's son, who's yeah. now with the Earls, yeah. and Kenny Ingram, who Kenny had wow. been with flat several times in the 70s. You know, Sounds like a great band. They came out and just crushed flat and scrug stuff and secular mm-hmm. stuff. But I had been trying to learn. Scruggs kicked off six white horses. It was a Clyde Moody tune that Flat used to sing. Mm-hmm. Scruggs kicked it off. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it sound like that. Uh-huh. And I stopped Kenny Ingram in the hall backstage at the old Bean Blossom Festival. And I yeah. said, I'm trying to learn how Earl kicked off six white horses, and I can't make it sound right. He said, oh, you mean this? <laughs> and I said, yeah, that. And so uh-huh. I, I took a few notes and watched how he did it and wound up developing the ability to use that lick. And it wasn't just the kickoff or that little, you know, boogie-woogie, you know, blues beat tune. It wasn't just that. Scruggs used that as a fill. That, yeah, that's a very it's common a great thing. fill, yeah. but, you know, at the end of a line or between a transition. And I wound up going hog wild with the thing and using a ton of it because I had seen Reno play just before that. And was learning a few uh, crazy little things that I that I, I was hearing in my head that that Reno used to do. So I wound up taking, I wound up doing a whole lot of bluesy inversions with that lick. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. And I, so I have wore it out now. You, you, we're just talking your standard major chord position that works anywhere yeah, you grab it on the neck. Yeah. yeah, but you know, yeah. It all started with Kenny Ingram showing me how to kick off six wide right. horses. And now I have just wore that thing out. Yeah. Because you take also the combination, you go back to me being fortunate to see and hear uh, Crow and Osborne at their best. Um, that ocean of diamonds. About the time I really got a handful of playing, yeah. uh, the Bluegrass Album Band started reinventing all those old classics, you know. Yeah. Um, and there you go, B flat again. Take the key of F. Some people drank champagne out under the stars. Yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Krogh records that with Martin when he's like 20 years old. And uh, Bluegrass Album Band redoes it, do it again right. 20 years later. It, it started with Sonny. Sonny's 16 in Dayton, Ohio. And Bobby and Sonny and Jimmy Martin first record 2020 Vision. Yeah. Same thing. It's all in that standard chord position. Right. So you take and get. Yeah. Like you said, it's that rock and roll type of influence that that crept in there. And definitely by the time JD got a hold of it, that was. Yep. That's his signature stuff right there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I wound up just, just murdering that lick in every way you can do it, you know? Yeah. But I always, always liked that. A bluesy element like that. So you said uh, making it onto the poster at Bean Blossom was the the first or, uh, or the the start of your that professional career. That was part. Of, that was I. I got infected that day. That's forty years ago. Well, hopefully there's no cure for for that infection because we like having you here. 
folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction. And at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele. So you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots Music. Check out the courses they have and this is just for banjo you could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with bill evans Clawhammer banjo with evie laden wade ward style banjo with bruce molsky the banjo according to danny barnes and contemporary bluegrass banjo with wes corbett each of those courses include high quality video lessons downloadable notation and tab play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play and the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. Where did your professional career go after that? What was the first time that you had like a, a group that was uh, uh, maybe getting recognized? A year later, I made friends with a Middletown, Ohio guitar player and singer named Mark Rader. And uh, me and Mark and my dad started a band called The Traditional Grass. Uh, right about the last couple of months of 83, uh, my dad was a popular radio personality again at that time. And I was on the air as well in Middletown. I'd finished high school. And yeah. we were on the, the Middletown, Ohio radio station. And The Traditional Grass started playing uh, car lots, and flea markets, and local uh -huh. county fairs. Mark was a great singer and a good guitar stylist and good rhythm player. Mm -hmm. And he sang really good and true. He pushed me to develop my vocals. And uh, we found a good bass player. You know, once we had a gig, then I had something to do. You might love boys all your life, but you'll never find yourself the perfect wife. So you'd better think it over before you pack to go. There's hard times sometimes anywhere you go. You might find a greener pasture, you might find 
find a better way You might find a way to make a living Without working every day But before your life is over There's one thing that you'll know There's hard times sometimes Anywhere you go Immediately, we didn't start in doing uh, all the standard covers. We, mm -hmm. I'd say, in, in the early 80s, the Bluegrass Album Band was uh, the hottest special event thing happening, and they were covering all those Flat and Scruggs classics that we'd all learned growing up. Yeah. And Jimmy Martin classics. But they kind of cornered the market on it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. We, we knew, even though we started out just playing regionally, we just can't go out and do the same stuff that the jammers are doing in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. So we started digging deep into the, uh, the un- recorded songs that Flatt and Scruggs had done. I'd gathered a ton of live radio shows and stage shows. Oh, and yeah. if we heard Flatt and Scruggs do anything that they had never put on a record, we would do it. That's on the list now, yeah. We would do that. At the same time, my dad was well-versed in all types of, of, of old-time country and bluegrass music. Every now and then he'd say, here's a song you guys should, could sing, and it would be something from the Leuven Brothers or the Delmore Brothers. What a great resource, yeah. yeah. That's some incredible. deep catalog from Jim and Jesse. You know, something he knew was a good song, that would suit what Mark and I were trying to develop vocally. So, first few years, we were pretty much a cover band, mm -hmm. but we didn't do the standards. We started digging, and that yeah. let us reinvent songs that had been forgotten, and uh, it made me develop my own style. I was just going to go there, so thank you for the segue. What would you consider to be your own style, or what elements make up your style of playing, do you think? It's mainstream bluegrass. It's, it's Scruggs-based. Mm -hmm. um, with uh, a little Reno influence and uh, a little bluesy influence mm -hmm. and a whole lot of Sonny Osborne influence when it comes to playing backup. Sure. I, and I'd love to do that. And right, right, off, you know, right as my first professional band, I'm with a really good singer. And within a few years, we started writing our own stuff. We wound mm -hmm. up hiring a great mandolin player that was a good baritone singer and songwriter. And so we started really striving to do original stuff, whether yeah. it was a, a deep catalog tune that we were reinventing or totally rearranging from some obscure source, or if it was right an original tune. And I wanted to try to have a little bit of an identity. So playing a, a Scruggs-Reno combination with a bluesy edge to it, and then being able to play backup. And I told people back then, if it's a good standard, you know, three or four chord bluegrass song, if the banjo player kicks it off and takes a break, he's still only playing uh, in that element. He's still playing less than a third of the song. Yeah. What are you going to do the rest of the time mm -hmm. that's going to lift the music? What are you going to do the rest of the time that's going to complement the vocals, that's going to support the fiddle and mandolin? So what's your answer to that? Take us through how you would approach backing up, say, a, a vocalist, how you how you back up a fiddle solo, how you back up a mandolin or a guitar solo. Don't play the melody, but don't alienate it. Play around it. Don't play on top of the vocalist and cancel out the notes that he's singing. Mm -hmm. Don't play too much. It's got to be like baby bear soup. It's got to be just right. You can't play. You can't <laughs> yeah. play too much or too little. You know. I'm, I want it to be tasteful, and I want it to, to complement what's going on. Same way, if it's time for the fiddle break, uh, I don't want to stop playing, and I don't want to just play what the mandolin's chopping. 
Mm-hmm. I want to find a role, and I want to find some feeling to accentuate what he's doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, getting to see J.D. Crow and Don Reno and Sonny Osborne on stage at their best, you learn a ton of that. And I saw the Osborne brothers a lot in the 70s when I was growing up, and they were just four-piece. They were four-piece until early 80s. They hired a fiddler. Okay. Um, I guess Blaine Sprouse. And uh, so Sonny played back up on everything. And uh, he played too much sometimes, you know. <laughs> the brother's the greatest vocalist that ever took a breath. Right. And sometimes Sonny's going way down, way out on a limb. Yeah. And uh, but he's always experimenting. Yeah. Oh yeah. But if you you take what he did and you put it in a, in a band setting as a young guy, I really tried to pay attention to what was going on. Okay. And uh, it's it's a combination of rhythm and rolls, and uh, and licks and notes that don't get in the way of the vocals, but to, but that to help elevate the music. And make bluegrass, you know. Let me think of uh, something I can. Yeah, think of a and song a whole or lot something. Of it, yeah. A whole lot of it's Scruggs, you know. Sure. Still, the elements are Scruggs, and back and forth between first and second position, and up the neck. Yeah. You know, uh, between rhythm and rolls, and uh, it's having a feeling for that. Yeah. Um, you got to feel it uh, when it's a, a vocal song that has banjo accompaniment, because a banjo can really mess everything up. Yeah. You, you can have the whole world mad at you if you got a good band doing a bluegrass song. And you, you play every note you know as loud as you can on the whole song. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing, learning how to move your right hand, move the position up to create more subtle tones. Our banjo-centric audience knows, you know, when the, uh, the left hand comes up the neck, the right hand goes up the head. Yeah, you know, that's, closer that's to meet, as if to meet the, yeah. the hand in the middle, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, with, without a, a band and a singer, it's kind of hard to demonstrate a few things. Sure, sure. There's that lick again. I, I, <laughs> Can't get I away use, from it. I use yeah. it a lot. You know, I could sing a little something, then go ahead and play the backup for everybody, but uh, we don't want to be too long. Well, well, let's talk. I mean, let's talk about that in a way. You are, I think, one of the more talented people at singing and playing backup uh, at the same time, backing up yourself while you're singing. It feels. I, I, it's really, I, I can't play anything meaningful in the way of a role-based piece mm-hmm. while singing. But getting to watch Crow and Sonny, mm-hmm. they were so, had so, always such part of touch type bands, and they felt the music so much. As soon as they make that last syllable as a, as a vocalist, they had a good feel to play, you know. Yeah. You know it was going to happen. Right. Yeah. And that's how you think of it, is just a call and response yeah. with yourself. Yeah. But... Yeah, with your identity as yeah. a banjo player and, and, a, yeah. and a singer, and, and that's great. Reno could play something mean, meaningful while he was singing, uh-huh. and uh, I never was that good. And uh, there's been a few others. Ralph Stanley could play really good timing with a roll while hmm. singing. You know, that's Ralph Stanley. And uh, a couple other guys from up my neighborhood could too. One was Dave Evans, and one was Mike Lilly. Oh wow, yeah. They were monster players yeah. and singers, and could do both at the same time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Phil's guy, like JD and Sonny. You know, uh-huh. try to be anyway. Cool. Again, fortunate to be with a good band in my young years. The traditional grass made a lot of good music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to go on and, and, and uh, be a part of an all-star band called Longview. Right. Got to I love some of those records, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was so fortunate. I, was, I could still play good. Traditional grass, we had uh, came off the road when I bought my first radio station. Ah. And, uh, but I get to do this Longview gig with some of the monster players and singers, you know. 
saw my friend Glenn Duncan here at the show and uh-huh. great fiddler and we worked on those albums and had a ball yeah that I yeah that's some of my favorite examples of your playing I, I imagine it's maybe some of your favorites too let me let me shift gears a, a, a huge event in my uh, progression as a banjo player was when I had only been playing for maybe maybe not even a year I saw an advertisement for the Earl Scruggs family and friends event down in Dayton which I know uh you had a big part in organizing and putting together. So I guess... I was the producer of that show. Yeah, so I guess, for one thing, thank you for doing that. That was a... a, I don't even know if I had been to a bluegrass festival, but I got to go to that and see all my favorites. Was that 04? That would be about right, because I think I started playing... Yeah, maybe 03? I don't know. Three or four. Yeah, I can't remember. It's been a long time ago. How'd you get the idea to do that, and how did that all come together? At that time, in the Dayton, Ohio area, the, the big nonprofit that presented Roots Music was an organization called City Folk. Okay. They had done, had been the host for the National Folk Festival when it came to Dayton. And, yeah. And my dad and I had worked with them on and off. I first worked with them as a teenager. They did a show called the Dayton Bluegrass Reunion uh, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was in my early 20s. It's where the name Industrial Strength Bluegrass came from. Was City Folk produced the Dayton Bluegrass Reunion with my dad and the Osborne Brothers and Red Allen and Larry Sparks. And uh, they, I had helped them. We'd collaborated with my regional radio network is all the southwestern Ohio area around Dayton. Yeah. We collaborated on presenting some shows. And this is before the Radio Ramblers. Uh, but they'd got me as a, a media sponsor or a partner to help book and present uh, some great bluegrass talent. And they said, we'd like to present Scruggs. While he's doing this Earl Scruggs family and friends thing, had Jerry Douglas with him. His sons were still healthy and with him. And uh, Earl was still playing pretty good. He'd done an album and won a, another Grammy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, we'd like to present Scruggs, but we don't want to just present Scruggs. We would like to have an all-star banjo extravaganza thing. We'd like to have Sonny Osborne and J.D. Crow and some of these guys be there for an afternoon event that's banjo-centric. Yeah. And then an, could you produce some sort of an all-star concert event so I, my wheels started turning. Sure. I said, okay, we'll do this thing operatic style. I'll get a good core band, Tim Stafford, and, and I forget who all else. I got a core I, band I could probably there. tell you. It was Terry Eldridge. It was uh, Ron Stewart playing fiddle. Yeah. Barry Bales might have been the bass player. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Stafford, I, I, Stafford and, and Bales were so close because they had worked with, uh, with Krauss all those years. And Terry Were Eldridge sons was there. involved too, maybe. Yeah, not um, in the All Star Band. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I remember. But I remember Terry those guys. was there because he was still Terry was definitely so there. very close to uh, Sonny Osborne. Yeah. And uh, and Ron Stewart on fiddle, and uh, then we would run a different banjo player out and do about three songs. Uh-huh. And those different banjo players to come out and do about a three song set were Rob McCurry, <laughs> yeah, uh, Jim Mills, uh, J D Crow, Sonny Osborne, uh, me. And uh, Tom Adams. Tom Adams, right. Yeah. And then we brought in Bill Evans. Mm-hmm. So all those players we just named. 
All of them. J.D., Sonny, Tom, And Rob. Earl. Yeah. <laughs> Lest we forget Earl. Yeah. Bill came in. And we did a VIP banjo event in the afternoon. Yeah. We took a smaller part of the arena, set up a, an intimate area there. And each, each of those players did about a 30-minute uh, workshop thing with Bill Evans, who's a great banjo teacher. Of course. And uh, Earl came out at the end and had some nice things to say about all of us and took some yeah. pictures. And then uh, we did this all-star program, Connie Opry style, with each of those three coming out and uh, vocalists trading off between Tim Stafford and Terry Eldridge and a few other guys. Well, here I was thinking that that event really changed my life in terms of being a banjo player, but maybe it was watching Bill ask all those banjo players questions and hearing how nerdy they got that maybe this is what I was really taking from it. I gave it. a lot yeah. of the same answers then, 18 years ago. I bet, <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Um, and I, I know I think I bugged you about this last year, but there, isn't there a recording of this somewhere that has never really come to light? And what's, uh, are you at liberty to share the status of whatever happened to it's that? It's kind of buried in a vault somewhere. I would have to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. At one time, I had video of the whole thing. Right. Uh, that's, on, I remember the cameras being there. Yeah, though. back then, it was, you know, it was VHS. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it got pretty tough to do anything with it. With that many mm. uh, star musicians to come up with a licensing agreement that would allow it to get off the ground and, and something to become of it. Mm -hmm. um, and the videographers that recorded it went out of business or something wound up to where we didn't have access to the exact original files that we needed to do stuff with. Mm. And it just kind of got lost in the shuffle, oh. uh, which is kind of sad, sad. So you think it exists somewhere, but you just it's just kind of... Maybe, maybe. I'd, I'd have to do some digging. Oh, man. Been a long time ago, man. Yeah, yeah. It's a it special was. day, though, to, to get all those guys to share that much with us. Yeah, well, like I said, I was uh, I was as green as green could be. So to have the opportunity to see, yeah, you know, the the top A list players all in one place, what yeah. a what a treat that was for me. I'll give you one more little thing if I can remember enough of it. Yeah, please. That's B. It's stop. It's tuned down. The fifth string is, and the rest yeah. of it, the banjo's tuned standard tuning. I mentioned the traditional grass and the challenges that I was really up for when that band started really hitting our stride. We got a contract with Rebel Records. We started touring full-time and had some good songwriters in the band. And there's a retrospective out. Rebel put out an album about five years ago, a, a CD, best of kind of thing, called The Blues Are Still the Blues, the oh. traditional grass. And The Blues Are Still the Blues was a song written by Mark Rader, who I mentioned, great yeah, yeah. singer and guitar player in that band. He wrote a song and... I could not find enough melody, could not find enough blues, could not find what I wanted, capoed in B. So I, 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 I said, uh, let's, let's pull the capo off and play it open B. Uh -huh. See what we can find on here. Yeah. And to get into the melody the way I wanted to, I had to play, as Sonny always said, inside. I had to move my, my middle finger on, on, on uh, the right hand up to the second string. Mm -hmm. That's that's inside. Yeah. E. There it is. Yeah. I've played this in thirty years. <laughs> Thank you. 
I love that example because that's something that I don't think anyone would even it wouldn't occur to you to even try because no. if you're in B that you put the capo on that's the yeah. rule yeah you do yeah you do. could not find the melody that I wanted could not uh -huh. find the feeling that I wanted yeah yeah First time I ever played that. <laughs> and you can open that fist string up. And having the open B string also gives you some other yep. interesting yep. possibilities too. Yeah. I'll have so, to try that. That's anyway. cool. Can we talk about this good sounding banjo of yours? Ah, uh, this is a 94 Granada. Uh-huh. Uh, boy, I'm the third owner. Uh, I've had it 22 years. Bought it in 2000. Okay. It was all original until uh, an airline broke the original neck out uh. about 11 or 12 years ago. And our friend, the great late Robin Smith, built a better neck than the original. And I wow. love the neck. Yeah. And uh, I've recorded a ton of songs with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it sounds great. It does sound pretty good. Yeah. Fifth, like I say, fifth, fifth string is really wimpy right now. And I've been filing on the bridge or working on the nut at the top. But I'll yeah. get it. I'll figure it out. Yeah. I got a great band. Always and something, right? A couple of the guys in my band are great. Luth well, three guys in my band are great repairmen, setup men, and luthiers on a variety of oh, instruments. Well, that's handy. They they take take care of an old guy like me, yeah. keeping his fifth string from sounding wimpy. So, do you got any other favorites in terms of like finger picks or bridges or like setup preferences? Uh, it it took me forever, but I finally got hooked on a blue chip. Yeah. And and I play the uh, the Jerry Douglas pick actually. It's a little fatter. I like the tone and the feel of it better, and they last forever. I'm only about my third one in the last 10 years. Yeah, wow. But I had I played a, a an old original National. National's plastic was different 25 years ago than it is now. Interesting. And I played a National tortoise copy thumb pick for uh -huh. years, and they got real weird with their plastic. And so I was mucking around, and I went to a Golden Gate for a while. And finally, I had to rehearse with a blue chip and get comfortable with it and get, get it in my head that, yeah. that it... It's, I love the way it sounds. But now you're sold. Sold. Yeah, cool. And um, I'm trying to think, Dean Hoffmeyer is in Richmond, Virginia. Uh -huh. He builds uh, finger picks that feel absolutely identical to the original Nationals. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the alloy was, whatever the combination is, they have the exact same feel and texture. And That's cool. I love them. And I've used them for years. I usually get Dean, he'll send me a, a fistful of them every couple of years. And I'll give a pair to a young player when they're starting out and say, see how these feel. You know? Oh, that's great. So I love them. Yeah, they're really nice. Yeah. So that's 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 about it. Uh, D'Addario strings, forget the number of the set. It's uh, nine and a half, 11, 13, 20, <laughs> 20 standard wound, yeah. nine and a half. Yeah. It's almost the Crow set with GHS I use for years, but the third string is one notch heavier and it stays in tune better for me. Okay. Because I, I have to move the capo around. I MC 90% of our show and sing on most most songs. Yeah. So uh, I can... you got to be on the fly a bit more. It stays in tune when you move the capo around. Yeah. That set of strings does. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I'll open the floor to you. If there's anything that I forgot to ask you that you'd love people to know about you or your playing, I mean, definitely tell us uh, websites where they can 
find you and your music? Oh, RadioRamblers.com. All right. Again, I'm so fortunate to have a great band. Uh And the the, the better my band gets, the less I play out front. Jason Berry, our fiddle player, just blows me away. He's Uh a great musician. And we're a very vocal-based band. I love to support uh, the other guys with what they do instrumentally. Every day we wake up thanking our Lord For all the blessings in our life People always talk about how times are so bad All I see are the good times we've had In our old Kentucky home It's the place where we belong It's been hard, but we've grown strong With the love in this old Kentucky home few health issues with my right hand uh, that have to make you rethink how you do a few things at my age. I'm 57. Uh-huh. And uh, it's not, I can't play what I did when I was 27. Yeah. It's just, just the nature of the beast. It's a fact. Yeah. It's a fact. But I still know what to play. And I yeah. can still execute something that's meaningful, uh, especially in the studio. I can take my time and relax. Uh-huh. And I seek to do that. I want to be identifiable as an artist. And I, our music is, I think the songs are. And hopefully my banjo style still helps the Radio Ramblers have an identity. So RadioRamblers.com. There you can also find uh, the best of for the traditional grass and stuff played as a young guy. Uh, Akitab did a book on the last two albums of that band with my Oh, play. cool. And, Didn't, uh, wasn't aware yeah, of that. That's cool. Print, but back when they did books. Uh-huh. You know? And I gave John Lawless the idea to do Crow when he did the flashback album with the New South in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, uh, or in the mid-90s. I said, go. I want you to tab 0044 and flashback. That way you got Crow on two ends of Awesome. 20 yeah, years. what a great resource. Yeah. So that that's wonderful. Well, thanks again, Joe. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Congrats again about uh, your dad's induction this evening. That's really cool. Very that's fortunate. A- very blessed. Thanks for covering what banjo geeks need to hear. Yeah, uh, I'm doing in, my best. In every aspect. Yeah, well, I'm and, one of them, so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear about it. So. And, I, and I'll, I'll give a plug for my son. If you're a Picky Fingers podcast uh, listener and you want to hear deep dive interviews, Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast, my yeah. son Daniel, he's not a player, singer, songwriter. But man, he's a great interviewer, broadcaster, journalist in Bluegrass these days. Yeah, I'll endorse that as well. He does a great job and he's... he's like you said, he's not a player, but he's highly involved in, in the music and seems to really I've have a love for uh, it. I've yeah. mentioned J.D. and Sonny a thousand times in this little interview we've done. He got a great interview from both of them mm-hmm. at their best a couple of years before yeah. the past. Which I'm not getting at this point, so that's, that's what we have. Yeah, go check that out for sure. Hey, thanks a whole lot. Yeah, thanks again, Joe. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joe Mullins. You also heard some sound clips, and in order, they were Charlotte Breakdown by Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers, You're Still on My Mind by the Stanley Brothers with a clip of Paul Moon Mullins DJing right after that. 
Bringing in the Georgia Mail by Curly Seckler and the Nashville Grass, Hard Times Sometimes by the Traditional Grass, It's Goodbye and So Long to You by Longview, and Our Old Kentucky Home by Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers. Thank you once again to Jason Kopek, today's Hall of Honor Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself and receive really cool rewards in exchange. Email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you next time. figured out this podcast thing.